HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, November 20th, 2019. This is the 235th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a legendary food writer and former restaurant critic, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to take chances. Yes, go after what you want and challenge yourself to take risks. Know that anything is possible with hard work and determination but nothing can be achieved without taking chances. We must take action to get results. So let's not be afraid to try something new or what we may be apprehensive about, but rather trust in the process and experience and believe that the venture is worth taking. As really, the biggest risk in life is not taking any at all. That's my tip today. 
Now, I'm really super honored to have my guest here with me in the studio. It is Ruth Reichel, best-selling author and food writing icon who was formerly the restaurant critic and food editor for the Los Angeles Times, the restaurant reviewer for the New York Times, and editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine, a title she held for 10 years. Ruth has authored five memoirs, including her latest, Save Me the Plums. Her work also includes her first novel, Delicious, and cookbook, My Kitchen Year, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life. She edited Best American Food Writing 2018 and the Modern Library Food Series. She was an executive producer and host of the public television series Adventures with Ruth and a Judge on Top Chef Masters. She is the recipient of six James Beard Awards, and that's her short bio. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. I was going to cut it down. I was like, I can't. (laughs) You've accomplished a lot. Well, I've had a long time. I mean, I've been writing about food for almost 50 years. So, you know, you would hope I would have done something in that time. You've done quite a lot, quite a lot. And I don't know uh, if you know that we have this in common. However, I am a grad of the University of Michigan. Go Blue. Do you know, you know, Gail Green is also a grad of the University of Michigan? I did know that. Uh, I I mean, but I discovered it at some point. But yes, um, we have that in common. Home of food writers, food people. (laughs) Obviously. So, so what brought you to Michigan? And, And back then, did, were you, did you know you wanted to be a food writer? I, it never occurred to me that I could be a food writer. I mean, literally, um, I, you know, I knew I loved food. I loved to cook. Um, I liked to write. But the notion that I could have a career in the thing that I liked best just wasn't on the table. I mean, in you know, in the 60s, nobody in America really cared very much about food. And, you know, if you were a smart person, you weren't really supposed to be very interested in it. Right. And, um, you know, when I thought about my career choices... Food writer never came up. I mean, food writers were mostly in those days, you know, home economists who wrote sweet little articles in the newspapers about how to recycle your stockings into, you know, pot scrubbers or something. Right. Yeah. Different time. So after Michigan, did you move? Did you move straight out to the West Coast? No. Um, my husband and I came to New York. We were living on the Lower East Side, which was very scary in 1970. It was very cheap. Yeah. But, um, you know, there were still Bowery bums and drug addicts, and we heard gunfire every night. But it was a great food neighborhood. Um, Little Italy still really existed. Mm-hmm. You would stand in the Pioneer Market, and some, you know, little old lady dressed in black would come up and say, you know, what are you going to do with those tomatoes? You want my recipe for Sunday sauce? And you could go to Chinatown and ask questions. <laughs> and they would, you know, give you recipes. And the old Jews were still Yay. all, you know, down there, um, you know, fishmongers and kosher butcher shops. And they were really happy to have some young person asking questions. So, I mean, I had jobs I hated. But mostly what I did was cook. And finally, one of my friends said to me, 
you're such a good cook, why don't you write a cookbook? And, you know, I grew up in publishing. My father was a book designer. And so I went to an editor I knew and said, you know, I'd like to write a cookbook. Oh, really? (laughs) She said, okay, what you have to do is you have to write a sample chapter and an outline. And I did that, and I took it to her. And I said, who should I bring this to? And she said, we'll publish it. I mean, that's how different things were. This was 1971. Oh, wow. Um, You know, today, if you said, I want to write a cookbook, they would say, can you cook? Where did the recipes come from? But in 1971, the notion of a young person writing a cookbook struck a big deal New York publisher as, oh, maybe there's something here. Wait, what was was the book called? It was called Mmm, A Feastiary. (laughs) Okay. And um, if you can find a copy of it today, I mean, it's very valuable. It's a real hippie cookbook. I mean, we got all our friends to do art for it, so there's art on every page. And my husband and I gave them camera-ready art. I mean, we did the entire, the design. We did everything ourselves. So it's very much a document of its time. But after that, people thought I was a food writer, and it was sort of the beginning of this notion, oh, maybe this is, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could write about food. Right. Well, I didn't, I didn't know that. Now I think me and all my listeners are going to try Googling to find this book. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one of the things is, you know, someone should have said to me, mm, it's five M's, yeah. is not a very good title. I mean, people are going to be embarrassed to go into a bookstore and say, do you have mm? <laughs> it's pretty funny, though. <laughs> So then what led you out to the West Coast? Because another part of, of your longer bio that I wasn't as familiar with and I don't hear, I haven't heard you speak about really is is your rest, being a, a co-owner of a restaurant in Berkeley. So living in New York in the 70s was pretty depressing. I mean, it was it was a very bad time in New York. And after three years, my then husband, who's a site sculptor, he's an artist, he's a site sculptor, and he just said, I, I can't live here anymore. We have to leave. So we packed up everything we owned in our truck, and we drove west, and our cat. And we had friends in Berkeley, so we went to Berkeley. And um, Doug made his art. Being in Berkeley was like going to paradise. It was very cheap. We um, sort of formed a commune with some other people. So 10 of us lived together in this house, and I did a lot of cooking and then um, joined this restaurant collective called The Swallow, um, which was a completely, co- I mean, we all did everything. Um, yeah. And um, it, it was wonderful. I mean, uh, we made everything from scratch. We were a bunch of overeducated, passionate cooks. And um, we were in the University Art Museum in Berkeley. And... Um, so I, I did that for a number of years. Meanwhile, I started writing <laughs> little freelance articles for magazines because I had written this cookbook and I right. realized yeah. I really yeah. liked to write. And um, one of my editors ate dinner in my restaurant every night. And one night as I was giving him dinner, he looked at me and he said, you know, you're a much better writer than our restaurant critic. <laughs> And you can cook. Have you ever thought about being a restaurant critic? Well, I was not thinking, 
oh, this is my new career. I'm going to be a restaurant critic. All I thought was free meals. You know, uh-huh. dirt poor. Right. They're going to pay me to go out and eat? Yeah. And um, it was heaven. I mean, I felt like, you know, I was so blessed. I got this job, and for the next six years, I wrote very weird restaurant reviews. Um, weird how so? Well, <laughs> all I knew about, you know, what restaurant reviews were, were, you know, newspapers, Gail Green. Um, and I thought that restaurant reviews should be more interesting. And so I decided that I would write little short stories. So the what I wrote were basically short stories with the restaurant information woven through it. And I wrote westerns, I wrote love stories, I wrote things like science fiction that was set on Mars. I mean, they were, they were truly strange. Um, but they got a cult following. And so I did that for six years. And I was really lucky because I got to learn on the job. Right. You know, I mean, they were paying me to go out and eat in all these fancy restaurants. And then I started writing for other magazines and I got to travel a lot. So, you know, the first Thai restaurant opens in Berkeley. And I was like, where has the food been all my life? And then my next thought was, is this really what Thai food is? I have to go to Thailand. I have to taste Thai food. So I came to New York and I went to every magazine and said I want to write articles about Thai food and I got enough articles to pay me to go to Thailand and I went to Thailand and then to Japan and spent a month in Thailand and a month in Japan. It's amazing. I'm learning about food. And then another magazine sent me to China in 1980, which I I was one of the first journalists to go to China, um, to this little tiny town. Um, And so I'm, meanwhile, I'm picking up, you know, more and more information. I'm learning along the way. I mean, I had grown up, I spent a lot of time in France when I was growing up, but I started going to France more too, just to, you know, really keep up with trends. And people were paying me to do this the whole time. And suddenly I get a call from the LA Times. That was my next question. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, they said, you know, we would really like you to come be our critic is about to retire and we would like you to come be our critic. And I was, I mean, I was 35 years old. I had never had a real job. I mean, I'd been freelance. Um, You know, I'd worked in the restaurant, but I'd never had a job. Um, And... I mean, never had health benefits, never had a real paycheck. Right. Um, You know, because we were living on nothing in our commune. And um, I wasn't sure I wanted to go take a straight job. And also, being a Berkeley person, you know, Northern California doesn't think much of Southern California. So I was very hesitant to move to L.A. On the other hand, I asked a lot of the people who had been my mentors, uh, Marion Cunningham, MFK Fisher, uh, Cecilia Chang, and all these, you know, sort of adopted mothers said, of course you have to go. I mean, you must do this. It's a challenge. It's time for you to do something new. So you took it. So I took it. So how did that position change over the years, though? Were you the critic and the food editor and 
the jack of all trades in the food department? <laughs> no, I started as just restaurants. Okay. And they wanted me to be the restaurant critic, but also to expand the restaurant coverage. So at that time, the LA Times had um, a San Diego edition, an Orange County edition, a Valley edition. Um, so they wanted me to hire critics for all of those places and to also expand the coverage in L.A. So I had a lot of people writing, um, you know, we, we had we did reviews like four days a week. Um, so that was a big job. And it was not connected to the food section. The food section was a completely different section. And at those days, the L.A. Times food section was the biggest food section in the country. It was 60 pages every week. It was huge. Wow. Because... There was still, you know, so Vons would take out six pages of ads and AMP would take out six pages of ads and Kroger's would, I mean, there was still a lot of competition and people still printed coupons. So it was this huge cash cow for the paper. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was very old fashioned. You know, it was run by old ladies. And here I was this, you know, young person who really passionate about food in a completely different way. And I had hired as my assistant, Laurie Ochoa, who, whose boyfriend was Jonathan Gold, and then her husband was oh, Jonathan. Yeah. Um, and Laurie and Jonathan and I sort of got together and said, you know, imagine what a great food section we could do. And when, so we sort of, just for fun, imagined what a really great food section would be. And we spent a, a long time working on this project of, you know, how you would cover a city and how you would introduce people to all the ethnic food stores and how we would do politics and, um, you know, tax policy. And that we really wanted to expand it to be much more than just recipes and restaurant reviews. And so just for the fun of it, we sort of did this proposal about what a section could be. And... When the old food editor retired, a new, a new editor of the paper had come in, and he said, okay, the food section's yours. Amazing. Um, and that was an amazing time. That was an amazing time. Um, you know, we had a, a photo studio. We had a test kitchen. Uh, we had a staff. I got to hire more people. Um, and... We, I, I'm really proud of the food section that we did. I mean, yeah. it, it became the template for what we later did with Gourmet. Yeah, absolutely. And you seem to be okay with having a, a, a real job. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. No, I... You adjusted. I loved yeah. every minute of it. But I have to tell you, I was so unused to having a job that the, my first year at the LA Times, I started in June. And on the 4th of July, I went into the office and said, where is everybody? <laughs> That's probably what I would do. <laughs> awesome. Okay, let's take a little break here, and we will come back and talk more with Ruth. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. 
When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How do they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combine their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is is Ruth Reichel. She's a food writer, editor, and former restaurant critic at the LA Times as well as the New York Times. Let's segue into the New York Times a okay. little bit. Okay. So 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 did they come calling after you, yeah, they, you had they, developed your amazing food section? Yeah, They actually or did. I mean, uh, when Brian Miller uh, decided he didn't want to do the job anymore, they called me up and said, you know, we want you to come be our food critic. And again, I was really hesitant. I mean, I was, the food, I, I was editing this food section, and so I was much more than just a restaurant critic, and the idea of turning back into just a restaurant critic seemed like kind of a going backwards to me. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, because we, we were really thinking in very big ways about what food coverage could be. Um, and on the other hand, I'm a New Yorker. and that's, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, and one, the chance to move back to New York was really exciting to me. And secondly, you know, I mean, it was the New York Times. I mean, ultimately, it was irresistible. But I had no idea how different being the critic for the New York Times would be than being the critic for the LA Times. Talk Uh, about that, because that was one of the things I wanted to ask you. What was the difference? Well, you know, LA... uh, is a celeb. I mean, what LA cares about mostly is the movie business, and it, this is different now. I mean, mm-hmm. things have changed, but I mean, we're talking about the early '90s, and um, the truth is that I think people cared more about what celebrities went to a restaurant than they did what the critic of the LA Times thought about a restaurant. So I, and also. I had come from a very different time in food. I mean, when I started writing about food, you really could be both the food editor and the restaurant critic because it was not an adversarial role. You know, I mean, it, it, those of us who loved food in the 70s, the 80s, uh, we were all in it together. We wanted all of America to care about food. And um, so the critic wasn't, out to get a restaurant, and it was much more about sort of bringing people in and, you know, exploring new kinds of food with them and getting them excited about food than it was about being a consumer reporter about this is where you should spend your money. Right. And so you could, I mean, I could, you know, spend a week with Wolfgang Puck doing a profile of him 
and still, you know, write about his restaurants because um, it, it was just a di- it was a completely different time. By the time I came to New York, that was changing. The role of a restaurant critic in New York was very different, and you had this huge economic impact on the restaurants. And so on my very first flight to New York, a woman sitting next to me on the plane said to me, "Um, I know who you are. And I said, don't be ridiculous. You don't know who I am. And she said, oh, no. I know that you're about to be the restaurant critic of the New York Times. And the restaurant that I work in has a huge picture of you with wanted written across the bottom. (laughs) And the owner is willing to pay hundreds of dollars to anybody who spots you in the restaurant. And it just hit me that, oh, I'm walking into different territory. And I thought, I can't have this. I don't want, I want to be the people's critic. I want to be able to tell people what's going to happen to them when they go to a restaurant, not what happens to, you know, someone, you know, the restaurant critic of the New York Times who has a huge financial impact on the restaurant. So if they know who I am, I'm going to have to be someone else. Hence your your very elaborate disguises and characters. And I, I read Garlic and Sapphire's back, Garlic and Sapphire, right? Back, um, I moved to New York in 98. And so it was it was during your, your time with the Times. And I just, I read the book. I fell into it. I was like right into everything you were doing. But that, I was, that, that read was amazing. And just knowing what you went through, to do your reviews. Well, I really felt that it was, you know, when you're a restaurant critic, you are working for the readers. They are essentially your employers. And I felt like too many restaurant critics felt as if they were working for restaurants. And in fact, I had been on a panel with a restaurateur who essentially said, you know, it's like your job to tell me how to do it. And I was, wait a minute, it's not my job to tell you how to do it. It's my job to tell my readers what it's like to be in your restaurant. Um, you know, I, I, am, I, am, I am essentially the substitute for the diner, not for the restaurateur. And I felt it was really important for readers to feel like the critic was on their side. And in fact, after my first famous review of Le Cirque, which mm-hmm. was the first time I actually admitted that I was going out in disguise and wrote one about what happened when I was in disguise, when I was treated like dirt, and then when I showed up as myself and they danced around the table and um, I didn't wait for two seconds after, like I'd waited, I'd always waited for a table uh, in the past. And this last visit, it was just white truffles, black truffles, let's give you some champagne. You know, I... Yeah, there were two of us. We've got a four top, um, and of course, Sirio said my most famous, my most favorite line any restaurateur ever said to me as he led me to the table. He said, "The king of Spain is waiting in the bar, but your table is ready." And and that's it. You know, if you are that person and you're recognized, you are treated like a queen, and I didn't want that to happen. And so I wore these very elaborate disguises, which the problem with the disguises was they got to be known. Mm -hmm. So 
once and the restaurateurs would talk to each other. Right. Oh, you know, her name this week is Molly Hollis, and she's a little dumpy, gray-haired lady. And that picture is now in the back, (laughs) in the kitchen on the wall. And so then I had to be Brenda, the wild redhead who wore, you know, crazy colors and very high heels. And then they would know who Brenda was, so I would have to be Chloe, the blonde, the sexy blonde with the very tight clothes. And so I kept changing, changing the disguises. Um, and then I also had to change, I mean, my husband got to be known, so he couldn't come with me anymore. And, um, you know, I had to change friends a lot, you know, because yeah. um, some of my friends, if I took them too often, they would be recognized. It's fascinating, and it just, and then I'm thinking, and then you still had to do the job of writing the review, and, you know, I mean, that was, what you went through, they added um, layers that, to make, to do your job as well as you could possibly do it. It's very impressive. (laughs) Well, and and it was also, I have to say, it was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes as uh, Chloe, the blonde, I would go and sit in a bar, only in very high-end restaurants, and I would sit in a bar and wait for some guy to come along and, you know, say, you know, are you alone? Will you join me for dinner? And after, you know, saying, you know, I have to pay for myself, I would go, and there is no better disguise than eating with someone who doesn't know you're in disguise. Oh, that's awesome. And... (laughs) Um, you know, and is saying things very unselfconsciously because when you're a critic and you take people out to eat, they're very, they're very self-conscious about what they're saying about the food. But if you're just with some guy you've just met for the first time and he thinks you're just, you know, right. a nice woman yes. he's having dinner very with. Very good strategy. And, and he, so he tells you what he really thinks. And um, it's interesting. Oh. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to get a very different perspective. That's really cool. Okay, let me, let's go back to the question I have from my last guest. I asked Dave Arnold, who is my guest on episode 234, to ask you a question. He is the host of Cooking Issues on Heritage Radio Network. He's also the co-owner of Existing Conditions and the founder of MoFad. So here is Dave's question for Ruth. Do you enjoy more of the reviews where you like the place, or do you enjoy more the kind of hit jobs where you, where you, you know, are going to go to town on somebody? And kind of as a follow-up, you know, as a, a non-critic, in fact, I, you, will nev- you will never hear me say something negative about somebody else's restaurant or, or bar just because I know it affects their livelihood. Do you ever, as a critic, feel bad about the fact that you are saying something that's going to affect people's livelihoods, not just the owner and the chef, but, you know, the people who are, who are working there, like, you know, the servers and all this, like, does that, like, how can you shut that out of your head? I mean, I'm assuming you have to, to write the review, but how do you shut that, how do you shut that knowledge out of your head? Or are you just like, it doesn't matter, they're asking for your money, so they get what they get, and they should not get upset, you know? It's just, it's an interesting dynamic for me of, of do, of you know doing that. I mean, at least at the New York Times, they are relatively conscientious in that they have to go three times, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, still, three times. I mean, I, mean, like I went for kind of crazy responsibility. 
three times is, I, I would never go fewer than three times, but I would often go 10, 12. Um, you go as many times, if you're at the New York Times you, or the LA Times, you go as many times as you have to. Three times rarely is enough for a very yeah. complicated restaurant. Um, I hated writing negative reviews. Um, I, there are people who like that. There is no greater pleasure than loving a restaurant and being able to introduce it to people. And, you know, I, maybe one of my favorite reviews of all time was I, when I was at the LA Times, um, I started the review by saying, you know, um, last Tuesday I was the only patron uh, in this restaurant. And um, I hope that will never happen again. And um, there's nothing more joyful and finding a really talented chef and introducing that person to the public. Um, and there is no way to shut off the, the notion that you are having an impact on everyone's livelihoods. I mean, I don't think you can ever forget that. How I got through that was I kept a picture on my desk of a young couple, and I was actually thinking of me and my husband, when we were really poor and we got to have one great meal, my parents would send us for my birthday money to go out for one great, and it was the only great meal we got all year. Mm -hmm. And um, I would imagine that I had read a review or that this young couple that I had the picture of, they saved up all year to go out for one great meal on their anniversary. And they read a review where I'd pulled my punches and they had a really bad meal and they kept me honest because the truth is that is who I was writing for. And um, that is the consumer reports piece of it. And when you're, especially when you're writing about really expensive restaurants, I mean, I honestly do think that we have a contract with high-end restaurants and we agree to pay them a lot of money, and they, in return, agree to make us feel very special for a few hours. And that if they weren't doing that job, they were cheating people. And, um, you know, that was my job. But it never felt good saying bad things about a restaurant. Yeah. But it is the job. I mean, and if you can't do it, if you can't be honest, there's no point in doing the job. And nobody believes a critic who only says nice things. Right. No, that's true. You can't be, you know, Pollyanna. <laughs> I mean, you know, and if you can't do it, then you just have no business doing this work. Would you be a reviewer again? Would you ever take that on? Probably not. Um, and I, But not for those reasons. I think that the, the role of the critic is very different today than it was when I was a critic. And I think there's this new generation of young, extremely interesting, extremely good writers with a real moral conscience who are thinking about restaurants in much different ways than just, is the food good? You know, and you have such a more educated public today that, you know, I had to like subtly say to people uh, when I was writing about sushi, for instance, in the early days, you know, you can't just say, do not put the rice side into the soy sauce. You have to find a way to say that without sound, sounding didactic. 
But you, part of my job in those days was actually to teach people mm-hmm. about foods that they really didn't know anything about to introduce them to them. And that's an exciting thing to do. And to introduce, you know, to lure people into eating cuisines that they'd never tasted before, unfamiliar cuisines, to lure them into, you know, being more adventurous, to discovering their city through the food. I mean, that that was a very important part of what my job is. Today, in the time of Me Too, in the time of, um, you know, there's so many ways that restaurants operate today, you know, I mean, are they the ethics of eating all come into what a critic should do, I think. And that's a very different role. And I'm not entirely sure that I know how to do it. Yeah. No, it's a different time. It's also a time where you have restaurant reviewers like Adam Platt, who's doesn't go anonymously anymore or, or at least, I mean, his cover, his, his picture was on the cover of the magazine. (laughs) He probably, I don't, I don't know if he makes reservations under his own name. He probably doesn't, but he's he's not going through disguises. Well, let me say, you know, I predated the iPhone. I mean, today it would be very hard <laughs> to be anonymous. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the Instagram yeah. time, I mean, I, 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 I worked in a very different time than today. I mean, I'm not sure I could be anonymous today. I mean, I, I would have to I spend... Think, I think you could. <laughs> I have to spend an awful lot of time with makeup artists, like figuring out how to disguise sounds, myself. Sounds so fun to me. I was like living vicariously through you and really cool. Okay, let's take another break and then we're going to come back and we'll play my speed round game and talk a little industry news. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Do you love this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. We have over 35,000 shows in our online library. My name is Jennifer Leutzi, and I'm the host of Tech Bites, where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. You can find Tech Bites wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening. back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is, is Ruth Reichel, and it's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I name a couple things, and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Oh, vanilla. Oh, vanilla, she said. <laughs> All right. I think you're going to, oh, I think you're going to be great at this game. Let's go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Wine. Tasting menu or a la carte? Oh, that one's hard. Probably tasting menu. Small plates or large plates? Many small plates. Many, many. Okay. Communal table or chef's counter? Communal table. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Oh, I'll go either way on that one. Um, All-inclusive charge. Let's be modern. (laughs) 
Zingerman's or Katz's? Oh, come on. I'm a New Yorker. Definitely <laughs> Katz's. I grew up there. I don't know. I wasn't sure. That was, that and was... Zingerman's wasn't even open when I was in Ann Arbor. Really? No. Wow. I mean, not wow, but I just, I feel like Zingerman's just been there forever. Yeah. No, it has not. <laughs> All right. Well, good to know. Um, and good to know your preference. Um, Twitter or Instagram? Oh, I love them both. I can't. I mean, I do both. I mean, I I have a lot of followers on Twitter, so I love Twitter. And and I guess I'll take Twitter because I'm a word person. Well, you're extremely poetic and... I mean, there's there's many reasons I think you have a lot of followers on Twitter, but definitely your writing is is not like my writing um, or my all my explanation points. Yeah. But I have been having. I mean, I, I just started Instagram and I'm really having fun with it. I have to say, it is fun and it is so easy. You just snap a picture. Yeah, yeah. Photos. People like people like food photos too. Okay, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Oh, cheese plate, definitely. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Manhattan. Manhattan. That was the game. Okay. That was uh, that was fun. That was yeah. fun because I, I, you know, I, I didn't know what you were going to say, which, uh, and everyone, everyone gets stumped on different <laughs> ones too. It's, 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 it's been fun to play it with all my guests. Okay. So the article I picked out for industry news was the New York Times review today. Figured you'd be a good person to talk with about that. Uh, so, so Pete Wells re-reviewed, or his first time reviewing, Gotham Bar and Grill, affirming three stars, which it previously had. It says, Changing Chefs, Gotham Bar and Grill starts a new era. And um, I looked back, and it was, you know, you, you reviewed Gotham Bar and Grill back, it said, in 1996, also three stars. <laughs> so what was your take on this and, re, you know, re-reviewing a place? Well, I mean, obviously, it's it's an old restaurant. You've got a new chef. Of course, you would re-review it. Um, I have not been, so um, I have heard people really chattering about Pete's review. I, I love Pete's writing. I trust him. Um, made me want to go there. Um, you know, it's... It, it's very interesting to me that after, I mean, how many years was Alfred there? And he, 30, well, it opened in 1984, and it said shortly after he was there. And now he's he has, I think, as of last week, opened his own place. Opened his own place, and he's such a talented chef, and yeah. he has had such a big impact on the industry. I mean, actually, the uh, jacket of garlic and sapphires is essentially taken from something that we redid, something that Time Magazine did that was shot at Gotham, which was one of Alfred's very high salads. And he sort of invented that, you know. That vertical. Uh, that yeah. vertical food. And um, Time Magazine, or I, I don't know if it was Time or Newsweek, but one of them shot me with the salad, you know, a waiter serving me the salad so you can't see me. And, you know, I mean, he, he's, he's had a major impact on the industry. Yeah, I didn't. And it's wonderful that there's a young woman now taking that place. Um, yeah, Victoria Blamey. Um, she's, you know, she has a, she worked at Atera and more, more recently at Chumley's. And uh, I went in, I popped in 
by myself and had had some crudo at the bar recently and it was lovely i didn't i just i didn't go full force dinner and i like to go back um but i'm a i'm a fan of hers and it was nice i loved to see. chumley's yeah loved it. well she did a, she had that amazing burger at chumley's and there is a burger at the bar at at gotham that you could get and um yeah, I I think it's 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 cool, and I also, I guess, and you know, I, I she came in in the beginning of September, so it's been a little over two months, and I this is something I think has also changed since you were a reviewer is how quickly reviews now come out. I mean that's that's a pretty small window of a new a new chef opening. You know, when when I was at the LA Times, I, I think it's a real problem reviewing restaurants really quickly because yeah. we all know that in six months everything will be different. I mean this you know, it takes a long time for a restaurant to find its feet and the staff changes, the menu changes, and it, it there's a lot of trial and error. And so you're not reviewing a restaurant at its best. And when I was at the LA Times, I started a column called First Impressions. And it was just, we did it every week, and whatever new restaurant was, it was just a paragraph saying, this is what it is, um, this is what the food is, this is what I especially liked. Not a full review, but just something to buy us enough time. So we had, we had announced the restaurant, we talked about it, and that the full review would come down the road. Um, I I still think it's really a problem to review places too fast. Yeah, it's it's I I know it's become faster because of the internet and everyone, as we said, with social media and everyone's there's a lot of people already putting out comments, and so I see why it's gotten faster. But I think uh, when I think back to when I first started doing PR and working with restaurants, I don't think anyone reviewed a new restaurant until at least six months. Just seem it was, and now it's about six weeks or a little more. Yeah, um, I, mean, I think I I did at the New York Times. I didn't wait six months. Okay, um, because I mean the truth is people do want to know, but I mean I think we have to f- come up with some way to give restaurants a little breathing space before they get reviewed. I mean it was always it always felt wrong to me to do it too soon at the New York Times. I did it because that's what people want, but it, it doesn't feel right. Yeah, well. Instant, everything's so instant these days. We'll see. Maybe, maybe things will shift at some point and just slow things down. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Okay, we're gonna take one more break, and we will come back, and we will do my solo dining experience, and we'll have the final question. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about Host Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27th, 2020 at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my All in the Industry show, Host, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format, featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Niporent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobiani, J.J. Johnson, and Jeff Gordonier. 
Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. We are offering a special early bird ticket price until November 30th, so don't miss out. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. So this week, it's at Nightshade. Here's the rundown. The location, 923 East 3rd Street, the Arts District, Los Angeles, California. The concept, it's contemporary Asian Californian cuisine with family roots. The chef and owner, Mei Lin, along with partners Francis Miranda and Cyrus Bachan. So why did I go? Because I had met Chef May at many events throughout this past year, and she's received numerous accolades, and so it was a must when I was out in Los Angeles about a month ago. So my experience, I actually had a reservation for two, and then my friend couldn't make it, so I went solo. Um, as soon as I arrived, the team was super warm and welcoming. Uh, I, they sat me at the chef's counter, and I saw May, uh, who was expediting. I ordered. Uh, they sent out some extra dishes. Uh, I got to sh- chat with the chef uh, before the end of my meal, and it was it was really wonderful. So what did I get? I had an oyster with passion fruit, leche de tigre, and charred garlic oil. I had hokkaido scallops with coconut and vin- coconut vinaigrette, crispy ginger, and coriander. Koshihi hakara rice kanji with exo pork floss and oisin egg. I had our famous shrimp toast with Cantonese curry, and for dessert, the thumbcord grape ice and almond sorbet. So my take. Absolutely fabulous. The only issue I had was this was a lot of food, and I just I could not eat everything. I mean, I tried everything, but I just did not finish, and uh, it was just delicious. The oyster was a perfect bite. The scallops were divine. The congee was ultimate comfort food. And the prawn toast, which is considered one of the best dishes it has gotten written up many places, it's just it's one of those dishes you just want to eat over and over again. And the dessert was really, really cool and interesting, a beautiful presentation these like purple bowls of the grapes it was it was very cool okay so the ambiance it's an inviting space it has blonde woods and it's kind of simplistic there's an open kitchen and to get there it's in a a alleyway in the arts district and there's a bright neon sign out front that you can find it i'd say it's perfect for dinner with friends date night or solo interesting tidbit so among the accolades that May and the restaurant have received are Top Chef Season 12 winner, Zagat 30 Under 30, Eater Young Guns, one of Food & Wine's best new restaurants, and GQ's best new restaurants in America. Not bad. Personal fun fact. So events I've, I've, I've met the chef at uh, once in D.C. She did a dinner with my client Eric Bruner-Yang. It was a, 
James Beard Foundation Celebrity Chef Dinner back in the spring. And then in Aspen at the Classic, where I saw my guest Ruth, and we were at the same the same event. She was uh, doing the best new restaurant event at the Jerome Hotel, and she was serving her shrimp toast. So um, it all ties together. The cost, it was $66. That's not including tax and gratuity, plus there was a, a dish or two they sent out. I, would I go back? Absolutely. The website is nightshadela.com. I'm assuming you've been. Well, oddly, I had almost exactly the same experience. I really? went alone because okay. my friend stood me up at the last minute, <laughs> and I had almost exactly the same meal, and she sent me out way too much food. I mean, I left there with bags of food that yeah. I took back to uh, the friends I was staying with. Um it was a wonderful experience. She came and sat with me for a little while. Um, and that kanji, oh my God, that kanji was so great. It was so good. I I, I just knew if I ate the whole bowl, I, I was going to be done. I couldn't stop. <laughs> I just couldn't stop. I really, really liked that restaurant a lot. Me too. She's she's great, great person, great chef, great, I don't know. It was I was excited to experience it. And it was actually really nice because I was sitting at a table, not at the chef's uh, counter, and people all around the restaurant kind of talked to me. I mean, it was that kind of place where it would turn around and, you know, actually, I mean, I didn't feel alone. Yeah. No, that's nice. My my server was so, sometimes I, I don't know, sometimes I get service that just blows me away, and that's how I felt there. They made, they really took good care of me, and I, it was it was special. It's a, it's you know, and this interesting. I went out to L.A. just really checking out the dining scene because oh, <laughs> L.A. is so amazing right now. Uh, trying to keep up. I mean, it's really yeah, it's very strong. It's, yes, it's 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 truly an exciting place to eat at the moment. Okay, so it's time for the final question. So my next guest is Jen Pelka. She's the founder and owner of the Riddler in San Francisco and New York City, and she's the founder of Magnum PR. And Ruth, uh, I'd like you to ask her a question. Okay. Well, as as you probably don't know, I worked with Jen in, like 10 years ago. Uh, we were both at Guilt Taste. She is a remarkable person with um, more energy than anybody I've ever met, and someone I would bet on her, on anything she did, I would follow her anywhere. And my question for her is, why when she started the Riddler, I guess I'm supposed to ask this, why when you started the Riddler, <laughs> uh, why did you decide that you only wanted women investors? Great question. And yeah, she's she's a dynamo. She's amazing. Amazing. I, I'm excited to ask her. She's also going to be a speaker at the host summit and social conference I'm doing in January. So I'm excited to have her involved and um, I'm excited to have her on the show and hear how she does it all because her other business, she's a publicist like me and um, yeah, keep it, keeping busy and, but making it work. Absolutely. So um, thank you. That's the show. And I wish we had four more hours. Uh, You're you're absolutely amazing. You're, you are uh, everything you've accomplished. And and just the fact that I have this opportunity to interview you is really, really special to me. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And we didn't 
I had a bunch of questions I was going to ask about your time at Gourmet. And I know you have your new memoir out. Right. Yeah. So read it. it save me the plums. <laughs> you can read all about it. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> we didn't have time to talk about your whole history at Gourmet, but I'm dying to read the book. I, I, want, I want to know all about that because that's a whole other chapter of your life that's pretty, pretty special and impressive. So thank you. Thank you. My guest today has been Ruth Reichel. She's the legendary food writer, editor, and former restaurant critic at the New York Times and the LA Times and the former editor-in-chief of Gourmet. You can find her on her website, ruthreichel.com, and also on Instagram, at ruth.reichel, and Twitter, Ruth Reichel. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. Websites, BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. And also, AllInTheIndustry.com. And that's where we're selling our Host Summit Plus social tickets. There, We have a good early bird price going in right now, so I hope you'll snag them up. And the event is January 27, 2020 at the William Vale in Williamsburg. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer, Tanae Jeet. Thanks again to Ruth. I'm Sherry Bayer. So next week, we are off the air for Thanksgiving. Our next live show is going to be Wednesday, December 4th at 4 p.m. I hope you all have a wonderful and delicious holiday, and thank you for, for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.